This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who have left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Today we're talking about the Octagon House. Joining me is Marcy Reed, Executive Director of the Architect Foundation, and Margaret Fallon, Octagon House Manager. Now, Margaret, can I call you Maggie? Yeah, please do. Okay, fantastic. So um, let's start off, uh, Maggie. Tell us about the Octagon Building and who built it and when. Yeah, so the Octagon is one of the oldest houses in Washington, D.C. It was constructed beginning in 1799. Um, It was completed in 1801. It was built for the uh, Taylor family of Virginia, uh, who were at the time one of the wealthiest plantation families uh, in the state. So they built it uh, as their winter social residence. So they were in the city during the winter social season every year starting in 1801. um, And During the War of 1812, so the winter of 1814 to 1815, uh, President Madison and Dolly Madison uh, lived in the house. Wow, that that sounds, it's a ton of history. I've I've been in the building, it's just gorgeous. Um, So if anybody's thinking about uh, taking a visit to any of the historic structures in Washington, D.C., I highly recommend uh, coming down to Octon. We'll talk a little bit later about how listeners can um, actually get access to it and, and visit. Um, so, but right now, uh, the building is actually owned and shared. Um, how long has the Architect Foundation been in the building? Great question. Um, the American Institute of Architects recognized the influence that this building had as a symbol of uh, Washington, D.C. And when they moved from New York to D.C. to be in the nation's capital, an architect named Glenn Brown decided the Octagon was where the AIA needed to reside. So in 1898, they began restoring the building and they purchased it in 1902, which is why today it's in the hands of the Architects Foundation, which is the philanthropy of the American Institute of Architects. Does the American Institute of Architects um, own other historic structures and and help to support them in preservation? Or is this one of their, this is one of their headquarters, right? Um, Well, the AIA actually built its own headquarters building when they outgrew the Octagon House in the 1970s. So, in fact, we have a nice little campus. And part of why the architects won the commission to build the current AIA headquarters is the way they wrapped the current building around the edges of where the Talos outbuildings had been to create a nice little campus. So you've got a brutalist modern building communicating very beautifully with this uh, impressive example of federalist architecture that's so historic. As I mentioned, I've been there. It is gorgeous. Um, You're listening to Leaders and Legends, and I'm talking today with Marcy Reed, Executive Director of the Architect Foundation, and Margaret Fallon, or Maggie Fallon, I'm sorry, of the Octagon House. She is the manager. So in doing some research on this beautiful building, I read story after stories about it. I mean, there's some really good information out there on this building about it being haunted and tracing it back to the original owners of the house or being known for raising racehorses and slaves. But the one thing that really struck me was the history about the slaves. And and I read um, some, some um, ex, you know, parts of a book 
called A Tale of Two Plantations by Richard Dunn. And now he talked mostly about, um, I guess, their summer residence and a little bit about the Octagon House. But he stated that John Taylor, um, the third master of Mount Airy, from 1792 to 1828, bred horses and slaves. Uh, The horses he raced, earning him the reputation as the leading turfman of his generation. The slaves he worked and sold. There were, as Dunn counts, 252 recorded slave births and, unfortunately, 142 slave deaths out Mount Erie from 1809 to 1828. I mean, it's not that long a span of time. Providing John III, or John Taylor, with 110 extra slaves. Did the Taylors have slaves that lived and worked in the Octagon building? They did, yes, yeah. So they had uh, 10 to 12 slaves that lived there year-round, um, and then they brought another eight or so up with them back and forth for the winter season. So um, what was it like for these, you know, I, I, I just can't even think through what it would be like to be a slave, but how, how were they treated and what did they do in the in the Taylor house? Uh, so uh, one important thing to note about the Octagon is we don't have any separate slave quarters. Um, so all of the slaves that were working in the house were sleeping where they worked in the house itself. So if they were working out in the stable or laundry in the outbuildings, they were sleeping out there. Um, if they were working in the kitchen, they were sleeping on the floor of the kitchen. Um, Anne's lady's maid and John's manservant were sleeping on the second floor landing outside the master bedroom uh, because they were on call 24-7. So if they needed to get a glass of water at three in the morning, they were there to get it for the for the Talos. Now, I, I've been in many uh, historic structures around Washington, D.C., and I, I don't see these stories really being told, and, and it's clear that you are very aware of it. How does the Octagon building, do, do you share this other side of the story? We do, yeah. So uh, the when you come on a tour of the Octagon, you can go into the basement, the first floor, and the second floor. Um, and the entirety of the basement was slave space originally, so we interpret it as slave space. Uh, and we point out the areas where the slaves would have been sleeping, where they would have been working, the work they would have been doing. Um, and then we try to carry that throughout the house. So up on the second floor, we have a mattress where Winnie Jackson would have been sleeping. She was Anne's lady's maid. And you can kind of roll it out and see what it would have felt like to sleep on a straw mattress on this wooden floor. Um, it is a very hands-on experience. And as a matter of fact, last week we had some visitors in from the Washington Historical White House Historical, White, White House Historical Society, and they tweeted about how they appreciated the way that our building interprets that experience. So that's we're very proud of that. Well, I, I think all kids should go and lay on that mattress and and uh, and for a lesson learned. So do you have much schools that go through uh, the Octagon House? We don't get a ton of like K through 12, but we get a lot of the local colleges come through. Um, and occasionally we get a high school class that comes through. Now, I know you have an effort right now about a part of the house called Servant Hall. Mm-hmm. Um, first, let, let's talk about what it was used for and what work was done there. Yeah, so the servants' hall was down uh, in the basement, so it was a slave area for the house, um, and it's where the slaves would have had all of their meals, um, and it's where they would have been 
uh, you know, sewing on a button on a shirt if they needed a place to sit to do that. Um, and it's where any limited downtime that they would have had would have been spent in there. That's where all of their communal group activities were taking place. Um, so at the moment, it's closed to the public, but we're trying to work on getting it reopened. Um, and as part of that effort, uh, we need to do some reinterpretation of it to really tell the full story. Um, and we need to replace the floor in there because the floor was originally wood as opposed to brick, which the rest of the basement is. So how are you raising the money or, or do you have the money to, to do this restoration? Well, I have applied uh, for a couple of grants, not successfully, unfortunately. Uh, one exciting development is that a uh, preservation class from GW is actually working to help us come up with a proposal for how to do that. We do have some cost estimates that it would be between forty and $50,000. It doesn't seem like, um, a ter- well, it's a terrible amount of money to me personally, but it doesn't seem like a terrible amount of money. Have you have you gotten the word out? I mean, is there a way people who are listening to this today, because after reading and finding this connection, I, I know I'd like to, to make sure that we preserve that. So how can people donate or, or volunteer to help? Absolutely. So our website is architectsfoundation.org. There's a great big donate now button and you can pick the octagon as um, one of your options for how you want to help us. And there's a notes field where if you wanted to say it was for the servants hall restoration, absolutely, you could do that. Have you looked into the servants that live there and try to find, um, you know, their uh, families that are alive today in the Washington, D.C. area? And and do we have a connection there? Uh, so we've done a little bit at this point. We haven't really fully dove into it all. Um, we know some of the people that were living or some of the slaves that were living in the octagon, but we don't have a full list of all of them. So it's kind of been piecing together a lot of who the slaves at Mount Airy were um, and where they were working and whether or not they would have been you know, brought up with uh, the Talos for the winter season. Um so we've done a little bit of that. Um, I know that there are still descendants of um, Harry and Winnie Jackson um, living down in Mount Airy um, in Virginia. Uh, so we've got a little bit of a connection to them, um, but it's still early stages trying to really flesh out a lot of those stories. Now, there's a lot of really good factual information out there, and, and we had shared during the break um, a, something I had read about a slave uh girl being walled in or or uh, you know killed and 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 left in the house and uh, and that the ghost haunts uh the building uh, have you has anybody seen anything like that uh so no one's ever seen uh one of the slave ghosts as far as i know um and the the legend of the slave girl being murdered and walled up we don't have any evidence for um john taylor doesn't have any record of having killed any of his slaves, although some of them almost certainly died while he was, you know, owning them. Mm -hmm. Um, But we do have the actual, um, the oldest ghost story that we have connects directly to the slaves um, in that uh, one of the Taylor's grandchildren after John Taylor III died wrote in her diary that uh, the servant's call bell started ringing on their own. Uh, and wouldn't stop until the Taylor family pulled them out entirely. Um, so we don't have any servants' call bells in the house anymore, but <laughs> they would have connected into the basement, um, and they just rang continuously for a while after he died, apparently. Yeah, I, I read that um, Mrs. Taylor actually had it removed because she thought people were 
you know, her, the enemies were trying to, to, to get her to move out of the house. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that I, I love this house and it's so many interesting stories. I'm speaking with Marcy Reed, Executive Director of the Architect Foundation and Margaret Phelan of the Octagon House and Manager. Coming up, we'll talk about the Octagon's Parlor. was a place of power and politics for the time. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Marcy Reed, Executive Director, Architect Foundation, and Margaret Phelan, Octagon House Manager. So let's talk about why the Talos, who had an incredible house in Mount Airy, I have seen it, uh, chose Washington, D.C. to build this magnificent house, the Octagon. 1800 was the first year that Congress met here in Washington, D.C., um, and there was really nothing here yet. It was a very rural area still, um, so it's a little weird that the Talos decided to build here instead of in an established city, um, but they were close friends with George Washington, who prior to his death was really encouraging the landed elite of uh, Maryland and Virginia both to build in the city as a show of support for it. Um, so he really encouraged the Talos when they started looking for a place to build their winter residence. Um, and then John Taylor III also had national political ambitions. So he ran for Congress in 1800 unsuccessfully, um, served in the Virginia State Legislature for a few years. Uh, but building here in you know the center of politics of the time meant that he could still socialize and rub arms with all of the politicians, even if he wasn't specifically serving himself. Um, and then building here before there was really a social scene meant that uh, the Taylors had their pick of lots. They could kind of design the house however they wanted. Um, and Ann Ogle Taylor could kind of build the social scene up around herself uh, because there wasn't, wasn't a lot of competition for parties yet at that point. <laughs> so what, what was it like in D.C. from a perspective of, um, you know, you know what were there stores? Was there? I mean, what what was it like at, at that time? I mean, that sounds pretty limited. Yeah, there really wasn't much yet. Um, most of the buildings that were in the city were workmen's houses, um, kind of shanty housing for people working on the construction of the White House and the Capitol building. Um, there were a few buildings set aside as boarding houses for congressmen and people like that who were in the city, um, but. In 1800, 1801, there really wasn't much here yet. There's a lot of controversy over choosing Washington, D.C. as the site of the nation's capital. Do you have any uh, history associated with the Octagon Building about that? Uh, not specifically with the choosing of the site, um, but that was really one of the big reasons that Washington wanted all of his rich friends to build in the city uh, was because... Uh, it meant that the general public would see it as more of a viable option if they saw the money was behind it. I, I did read uh, that John Taylor was ambitious and was a close friend of George Washington. So that makes mm -hmm. sense. W was, um, you know, because there was so limited, you, you mentioned that a social scene was there, but was the house a place where the powerful at the time met too? Absolutely, yeah. So because this was a social residence, um, they were having dinner parties almost every night. Pretty much the who's who of Washington at the time would have been dining there, um, and especially once the Madisons moved in in 1814. 
then it just really got even bigger because Dolly Madison was throwing parties all the time. I, I heard that these uh, afternoon sessions, they used to call it the squeeze. Yes. And you talk about, <laughs> I mean, I, I giggled when I read why, but please share with our listeners. Yeah. So they're, they're called Dolly Madison's either drawing rooms or squeezes. Uh, and basically she would just throw open the front door of the house, let anybody who wanted to visit come on in. Um, and they would have so many guests to these parties that you would only be able to move through by squeezing, uh, squeezing past everyone else. Um, why is the house an octagon? Why, you know, the architectural design is pretty unique. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever seen any house that looks like this. Yeah, so uh, it's mostly because of the shape of the lot. Uh, so the lot thems- that they bought is actually a triangle. Um, it's at the intersection of New York Avenue and 18th Street. So New York Avenue being a diagonal street uh, means that it kind of cuts off the corner of the lot there. Um, so when they were hiring an architect to design the house. Um, They originally hired Benjamin Latrobe, who was a well-established architect of the time. um, And he designed this big square house for them here in the city that then didn't fit on the triangular lot that they bought. So they switched gears um, and they asked uh, their friend, Dr. William Thornton, to design a house for them. Um, And he was uh, a medical doctor by trade um, and a hobby architect. So He had won the competition to design the U.S. Capitol building in 1792 um, and was in town overseeing that when they asked him to design the house. So he kind of saw this as a challenge and a way to show off what a polymath he was. Um, And he pieced together mostly circles, squares, and triangles uh, into the shape of the house that we have now, which isn't a traditional octagon, but... Uh, is more of kind of like a triangle with extra sides. <laughs> so it's the smallest at the front of the house with the rounded front on the corner, and then it expands outward on either side. It's amazing how there's just a handful of architects that really set the stage for what Washington, D.C. looks like today, whether it be an engineer slash architect like Montgomery Riggs or, uh, you know, the architect of the Capitol or the architect of, that designed the White House. It, it really is amazing what these geniuses did in laying out the city. And if you've ever been to another any other city, um, you know, LaFont's plan, I, I know where I am no matter what. Uh, but if you go, I'm, I'm going to, you know, make a comment. In Boston, I, I can easily get lost. Um, so was the octagon strategically, they chose that lot because it was in a good travel spot? Uh, so when they bought the lot, it actually didn't have any roads next to it yet. Um, so they knew where L'Enfant's plan was going to be in place. Um, so they kind of, they had divided up the lot into cities based on L'Enfant's plan, even before the roads were in place yet. So the Talos chose their lot based on proximity to the White House more than anything else. (laughs) So we're about two blocks away from the White House. uh, And it would have been when the house was first built, they would have been able to see the White House out of their back window. So, And they could see the river at that time. And they could see the river out of the front of the house. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty good location. I read uh, they had 15 children. I mean, that's a big building, uh, a big building. That's a big family, excuse me, um, by any standards, whether it's today's standards or, you know, the you know the early 1800s. Did they all live in the house? No, they did not. No. So they had 15 kids over the course of about 22 years. 
So by the time the youngest was born, the oldest was already married and had a family of their own. Um, so there was never more than about six kids in the house at any given time. Only. Yeah, that's still quite a bit. Uh, but the rest of them were off at boarding school or had families of their own or staying with family in other cities or even staying at Mount Airy for the winter. There, There's a grand staircase in the house and it's gorgeous. Um, can you tell us about the design and why it's so efficient? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the staircase um, is one of Thornton's great designs there for the house. Um, it acts um, as a kind of like a chimney flue in a way. So uh, the whole center of the house is open because of the way the staircase wraps around. Um, And the hot air essentially gets pulled up the center of the stairs, which means that during the summer, you keep the whole house cooler. um, And then during the winter, you're keeping the upper stories warmer when the windows are all closed. Another example of their clever geniuses. There's another... uh, Little known uh, architectural feature in the house I read about called the secret door. Yes. Uh, can you tell us what it, where it is, what it is, and what it is used for? Yes. So we actually have three secret doors. Oh, I knew one. <laughs> I know. We only really talk about one of them. Um, the other two we keep open at all times now because um, they were originally blocking off the servants' stair. So when the house was open for social gatherings, they would have kept them closed so that guests to the house didn't see the servants' stair. Uh, But now we keep it open because it's a fire hazard to have those closed all the time. Uh, But our third secret door we keep closed and hidden, um, and it's in the dining room. Uh, So the far side of the dining room, uh, it closes right into the wall, is painted to look just like the wall. Um, But inside is a closet that was originally the porter's closet, um, and it connects through into the entry hall. So it's got a visible door in the entry hall, but in the dining room it would have just been designed to look like the wall itself. I'm speaking with Marcy Reed, Executive Director of Architect Foundation, and Maggie Phelan, the Octagon House Manager. Coming up next, we'll talk about how the Octagon House was the residence for President Madison and his family after the White House burned down. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Marcy Reed, Executive Director of the Architect Foundation, and Maggie Phelan of the Octagon House and the House Manager. Um, so why and when did President Madison move into the Octagon House, and, and approximately how long was that sort of the White House? Yeah, so the um, War of 1812 obviously started in 1812, but it went until 1815. Um, And in August of 1814, uh, the British uh, won quite handily the Battle of Bladensburg and then marched into the city uh, and burned all of the government buildings down, um, including the Capitol building and the White House. Uh, And the Madisons, after evacuating the city when they decided to move back in, needed a place to stay. Um, And so they started renting the octagon from the Taylor family um, for about six months there. So from September of 1814 to March of 1815, they were living in the octagon. So um, were any of the items uh, that were saved from the White House moved to the octagon house? And and are they still there? Uh, So they aren't still there anymore. But we did get um, Dolly Madison sent several of her personal effects over to the octagon. Um, The French minister had been renting the house for the summer. 
So there was a French flag flying from the flagpole out front, um, meaning that the British couldn't burn it down without it being considered an act of war against France, um, even though they were under strict orders not to burn private residences. That was kind of an extra level of security for the house. Uh, And Dolly Madison, knowing that and knowing the proximity of the house to the White House, um, sent some of her stuff over uh, for safekeeping um, to the French minister there. So she sent... uh, a lot of her clothing and trunks um, full of that stuff. Uh, her floor-to-ceiling red curtains got sent over. Her pet macaw came came directly <laughs> to us. Interesting choice. My house is under yeah. fire, and I, I want my red curtains. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my red curtains and my parrot. That's what she wanted to save. Yeah. <laughs> well, parrot, I might understand. People love the birds. Um, so, you know, we're... Were there any artwork that was stored there? or, or... So we did not get the Washington portrait. Okay. Um, that was taken directly out of the city, out to a barn in Maryland, where it was stored for the rest of the war. So something as another location in the house that probably was used heavily while uh, President Madison was in the house was, tell us tell us about the circular office, the significance of this room. Um, and, and there's a special table in the room, I understand. So, uh, you know, what happened there? Yeah, so on the second floor, um, the round room at the front of the house, uh, we call the Treaty Room. um, And that is where the Treaty of Ghent was signed, which officially ended the War of 1812. Um, So this is the room that John Taylor, when he was there, he used as his official office for all of his official business. Um, And then when the Madisons moved in, John, or John Taylor, James Madison uh, moved in and started using it as uh, the essentially the Oval Office, um, and that's where he had all of his cabinet meetings, where he signed all of his official documents, um, and that is where he signed the treaty that ended the war. So that is our big historic claim to fame, is that the War of 1812 ended there. And we actually have two treaty tables. The original one disappeared for a while after the Talos left the house and it went into some other uses, and the AIA chapter in San Francisco saw it on an auction in like the 19... 19- 20s and purchased it and got it back to the AIA. So we have the original table in the lobby that we received back, and then um, we have a replica that is actually one, again, a very hands-on museum. You can sit out, you can pretend to sign a treaty at the table in the mm-hmm. um, in the treaty room. Great Instagram yes. opportunity. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we, we see a lot of that. Uh, we have a very active Instagram account, actually. So the Madisons, you know, clearly Dolly Madison was uh, a socially oriented first lady. The Madisons had many social events at the house. What did the Madisons have done to the house to make it function for them temporarily as the White House? Did she have any changes made? I mean, if she brought her curtains over, she probably had some very specific opinions. Yeah, so she was actually very disappointed because her curtains didn't actually fit in the house. The ceilings were too low, so she was not able to hang up her red curtains in in the octagon, unfortunately. Um, But she did have um, a set of double doors added uh, to the far side of the entry hall as an extra level of security for the house, um, because originally you would come in the front door and it would just be straight into the house. Um, So she had this extra set of doors added in. So when they were receiving visitors, they could have them open and anybody could come in. But when they didn't want to actually see anyone, they could close them and people calling on the president could you know, be kind of kept waiting in the entry area there. And I read about the master bedroom is a little bit odd in the sense that it doesn't really have any doors or it leads right into the the uh, office. Uh, so it 
doesn't anymore. Um, but originally there was a door similar to um, to the porter's closet down in the dining room that would have connected the master bedroom to the treaty room. So John Taylor's dressing room would have been in there. So he could keep all his clothes at at hand. Okay. So um, how big is the kitchen in this house to, to be able to support all these social functions? Um, this must have been the heart of the house. Uh, it, it, you know, to, to you know, serving food and, and showing an abundance was important during that era. So tell me about the kitchen. Yeah, so the kitchen's actually in the basement of the house, which is a little unusual for the time period that they decided to actually put it in the house itself. It was kind of a fire hazard. Um, but they decided to put it down there um, because they knew they were going to be doing a lot of cooking and a lot of entertaining. So that meant that they could, you know, get all the food up and onto the table, still warm and ready to go. Um, so the kitchen itself isn't actually huge, um, but it's very state of the art for the time period. Um, so they have the big open range that they were cooking over. And then they also had a bread oven, a bread oven and a stew stove. Um, that sounds state of the art even for my kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the, the bread oven's basically like a pizza oven. So if you had a pizza oven today, that would be the equivalent. Um, and then the stew stove is just a stove top, um, which they didn't really have at the time. So it was unusual. Uh, that let them make delicate French French sauces and things like that that you wouldn't be able to cook over an open fire. You're listening with Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. Our guest today is Marcy Reed, Executive Director of the Architect Foundation, and Maggie Phelan of the Octagon House. So I, I got to ask you, um, how does a building like the Octagon House get returned to its original splendor? With uh, a lot of a lot of research uh, and historic preservationists who really care about the building, really. Um, so, it, any uh, preservation uh, activities going on right now? I know, I know, my husband was a historic preservation architect, so I really uh, uh, got to understand and appreciate the science behind preservation because just to figure out the color of the paint on the walls is a a big process. So. I understand you've returned the colors to the house to at least some period. Can you tell us about, you know, how you did that? Well, one thing quickly just, and I'll let Maggie talk about that because she was involved in a lot of the work with Benjamin Moore and company to uh, return the, the paint on the walls, as you, uh, if you will. But um, we are a nonprofit organization and we're governed by a board of directors and we're really lucky to have the interim chief preservation officer for the National Trust on our board of directors as well as a historic preservation architect with Grunley Construction. So a lot of times we rely on volunteers to uh, help guide us in uh, what we can undertake and fundraise for and what have you um, to preserve this historical gem. Um, and then there are times when we have successfully raised money or had a donor like Benjamin Moore come and help us through a specific project. But um, Maggie can speak a little more to actually some things that if you walked in during visiting hours today that you would be able to see. Yeah, so the paint colors themselves um, were touched up in 2016. That's the Benjamin Moore um, donation as they... Uh, donated the, the paint and the service for us to touch up the colors. Um, but the paint analysis to determine what the colors were was actually done in the 80s during one of the big restorations that they had. Um, so 
I've been through all of the files and they did all of the state of the art, everything you need to do to figure out the paint colors um, through that. Uh, and then we really just kind of rolled from that and updated the colors. Um, but there are two rooms uh, in the house today that are not period accurate colors. Um, they're colors of the time period, but not what have what would have actually been in the rooms. Uh, and that's because when we did paint analysis in those rooms, we found wallpaper glue uh, instead of paint. Uh, but unlike most other historic house museums, uh, we didn't find any scraps of wallpaper. Normally they just wallpapered over and so you'd get layers and layers and layers of it. But we found the glue and then no paper. So instead of kind of just guessing and taking a stab in the dark, for what the wallpaper might have looked like. Uh, we picked period appropriate colors and then painted the rooms instead. So those are still works in progress. Eventually we'll get back to the wallpaper for them, but for now there's no white walls because the Talos would never have had white walls. So <laughs> Or the Madisons. Yes. <laughs> I'm speaking with Marcy Reed, Executive Director of the Architect Foundation and Maggie Phelan of the Octagon House. Coming up next, we'll talk about possible resident that stayed in the Octagon House. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Eileen Black, and today I'm talking with Marcy Reed, Executive Director of the Architect Foundation, and Maggie Phelan of the Octagon House. So, I get to ask this question. I know it's a rumor, but I loved reading about this, and I talked to some people that felt they had experienced something. So the most famous ghost story or rumor or ghost resonant I read about that may visit the Octagon House is Dolly Madison. Yes. Many people have claimed that they did not only see her, but they smelled her strong lilac perfume. Have either of you seen her? I have no. not, no. I wouldn't still be working here if I did a ghost, <laughs> I don't think. Can we? Can you share with our listeners some background on this story or stories uh, where visitors may have seen her? Sure. So um, Dolly's one of our oldest ghosts, uh, and she apparently haunts our drawing room. Um, there's lots and lots of different variations of what she's doing in there. Um, there's lots of stories from the late 1800s, early 1900s of uh, people driving by late at night and hearing the sounds of a party happening in the drawing room, <laughs> often attributed to Dolly in there. Um, and you are supposed to be able to smell her perfume. Um, it's usually considered to be lilac, but interestingly, uh, Dolly's affection for lilac perfume only ever shows up in ghost stories about her. There's no historical basis for it. Um, but some sort of floral scent um, people claim to smell in there, which is often attributed to her. So I've never smelled it myself, um, but past employees of the foundation have smelled it. Um, guests every so often when they go through will ask me on a tour what we spritzed in the room when we didn't spray anything. So they're smelling something I'm not. <laughs> um, and then uh, sometimes... Um, People say that they can hear the rustling of silk skirts um, in that area, which is also often attributed to Dolly. Um, but then she also haunts three or four other houses in Washington, D.C., so she's a very busy ghost. <laughs> Have you had any uh, people on your staff that ever saw anything that, you know, kind of scared them? 
Uh, so no one in the immediate staff right now has ever seen anything, um, but we did have a cleaning woman a couple years ago who saw um, a man in black 1800s clothing walking up the staircase, um, who is one of our known ghosts, the man in black. Um, and she said he tipped his hat at her and she got so spooked she left. <laughs> <laughs> obviously didn't clean the house after that. <laughs> okay. Um, so can uh, people tour the Octagon House and, and how can they do that? Yeah, so we're open Thursday, Friday, and Saturday afternoons from 1 to 4 p.m. just for self-guided tours. So you don't have to make an appointment or anything. You just show up between those hours and walk yourself around. Um, and then we do guided tours by appointment for groups of more than five people. Um, and you can either call us or shoot us an email uh, and we'll get you on our schedule for those. So what's your favorite part or story about the Octagon House? Something I haven't asked you. Well, um, I guess I'm going to answer this. Uh, I'm going to wiggle a little bit on your question. Um, I've been with the Architects Foundation now for almost two years, and part of what's really exciting is we're working on ways to activate the building to not just be as historically significant as we've discussed today, but also speak to the fact that it was the first home to the American Institute of Architects in the nation's capital. So where the bedrooms were, now we have exhibit space. So what's really exciting is if you walk down 18th Street, you'll see we've got banners that are hanging on the wall telling you that there's something else exciting in here to see. So if you've been once, that isn't enough. You need to come back and see what we have going on. Right now we have a work, uh, uh, an exhibition by Coda Works. It's some spectacular um, artwork that is usually blended in some sort of an architectural setting. These are huge curated um, installations of art. And coming up in October, we have an exhibition on the significance of historically black colleges and universities. The other part of our mission as a foundation is attracting, inspiring, and investing in a diverse next generation of architects. So where we can layer the value of architecture to culture, add in some of what we're trying to do around diversity, um, so my favorite parts are almost yet to come with what we can do with the building in service to our mission. So I, I also think there's some, an outside, is there, is there a garden? There's a courtyard, yes, courtyard. which was the original garden for the house. Um, so it's between the Octagon and the AIA headquarters building. Um, the original ice house is still out there. So you can see one of the original outbuildings. Um, and then otherwise, there's just little patio area to sit some nice grass if it's sunny you can lie there um we also have uh some roses out there that were given to us by the belgian embassy in 2014 um as part of the commemoration of the bicentennial of the burning of washington and the signing of treaty the treaty of Ghent the following march and we do have a lot of people that um, rent the building for special events weddings and things like that so there's often uh Right before it got as hot as it is now in D.C., we had a lot of weddings. <laughs> it's a beautiful uh, house. I, I got to tell you, even if you're just walking down the street seeing other, uh, you know, uh, historic landmarks, whether you're going to the White House or, or something else, it's a great place to stop. It's cool. And uh, it, it's cool and cool. <laughs> and uh, it's just very interesting. It's one of those hidden gems in D.C. Um, 
You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. And our guests today are Marcy Reed, Executive Director of the Architect Foundation, and Maggie Phelan of the Octagon House. So um, I got to ask you, you guys both have such clear, strong passions around this building and preserving the history around this building and preserving that history and telling the story for the next generation. So how did you guys get into the roles that you are on today? What was your journey here? Uh, So mine is, uh, I came through the history side of things. My passion has always been uh, in history. So I studied archeology span in undergrad and then I did an archives management degree for my master's. and then just kind of landed in the octagon um, and had the privilege of working with its really rich history, its great collection, um, and just kind of filling in all of these extra stories to be told, which is really what I'm excited about is the story side of things. So let me ask you a question, Um, uh, you know, Marcy, would you have any advice for the next generation that would like to to get involved, get you know, follow that that uh, career path, what would you recommend? Um, well, architecture in general, I have a passion for. I'm married to an architect. Um, these days, one of the things we're seeing is a lot of buzz around design thinking. Uh, a lot of kids are pursuing an architecture degree, not necessarily with architecture in mind, but I think um, pursuing the rigorous uh, education of architecture Um, architects at heart are problem solvers. We like to say at our foundation, we believe that architects use the power of design to solve problems, transform lives, and create a better world. So um, certainly it's a hard degree. It's an expensive degree, but there's a lot that you can do with it. And preservation is just this one other beautiful component that you can use an architecture degree to explore. And as I mentioned, one of our board members, she actually works for a a contractor, but she is an architect who oftentimes argues with other architects because she has to tell them they can't build it the way they want to. But uh, in a city like D.C. and in so many cities around the world, there's only so much new construction that's possible. Preservation is growing as a way to uh, embark upon a career in architecture. It's, it's recycling. It's, mm-hmm. it's giving it a new life. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an important element that we all have to appreciate. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guests today have been Marcy Reed, Executive Director of the Architect Foundation, and Maggie Phelan of the Octagon House. I want to thank you both for joining us today and sharing your amazing story and the history and the splendor of the Octagon House. I'm Aileen Black, and thank you for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One.
here reminding you not to do things. What I mean is, with same-day delivery for everything from gifts to groceries, you only have to do the things you want to do. To not do the other things, visit shipped.com. That's S-H-I-P-T dot